Volume One, Chapter Eleven of Willard's Weird by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Eleven. A Fatal Love. Monsieur Drubard and his visitor descended the ladder and entered the police officer's apartment, which consisted of two small rooms, the outer an office and salon combined, the inner a bedchamber, which Mr. Heathcote saw through the open door a neat little bachelor's nest with a velvet curtained bedstead and walls lined with portraits of every kind engravings lithographs photographs the salon was decorated with the same style of art diversified by engravings from newspapers all representing notorious crimes the murder in the rue de la paix germinie latouche stabbed in the kitchen of the red cross restaurant by her lover gilles Perdi. The arrest of Victor Lorraine for the great forgeries of the Bank of France. The escape of Jean Biza, the parricide. Art had represented all these scenes with due dramatic fervour. They were hardly pleasing subjects in the abstract. But to Felix Drubard they were all delightful, for they recalled some of the most interesting and most profitable hours of his life. He was gratified to see his guest looking at those stories of crime in artistic shorthand. Gilles Perdi would have got off if it had not been for me, he said, with excusable pride. The police had been hunting for him ten long days when I put them on the right scent. We knew that he had not gone far from the scene of the crime, for there had been no time for escape, you see. The murder was found out an hour after the woman's death. He was hunted for in every hole and corner within a radius of a mile. No one had seen him leave the premises. No one had set eyes on him since the murder, which occurred in the early morning in October, when it was not light before six. How do you know that he ever did leave that house, I asked one day, meaning the Red Cross, a workman's eating house in the Rue Galande. He was a cellarman there, cellarman and terreur combined. My comrades laughed at me. They had searched the Red Cross from cellar to garret. They had not left an inch of the building unexplored. Have you looked in the empty casks? I asked. Yes, they had looked in the empty casks. The cellar was very neatly arranged, the empty casks in a row on one side, the full ones on the other. My friends protested that they were not such fools as to have overlooked an empty cask. Who knows? I said. We will go there this afternoon and overhaul those barrels. Need I tell you the result? It is history. There was one empty hogshead artfully pushed in a corner, last in the rank of unbroached hogsheads. The open end had been turned towards the wall, and in that empty hogshead, in that rat-haunted cellar, Gilles Perdi had contrived to exist for ten days by the aid of his victim's daughter, a child of seven years old, who lived in the house, and whom he threatened to kill as he had killed her mother, if she told anyone about him or failed to carry him food and drink twice a day. There, amidst vermin and ordure, he had lived, coiled up in his hogshead, and perhaps not much worse off than some among the poor of Paris, whose only crime is poverty. You have a right to boast of your scent, monsieur, after such a triumph as that. A bagatelle, monsieur, one of the feeblest of my cases, but it made a great hit at the time. My portrait appeared in three different newspapers, side by side with that of the murderer. A distinguished honour. And now, if you will be kind enough to give me the further information which you promise as to names and details? Monsieur Efgott, 
You are Mr. Distin's friend, and for you I will do what I would hardly do for my own brother I will trust you with one of my books." "You are extremely obliging." "I know, sir. But there are some people who think nothing of lending a book. They can hand over a treasured volume to a friend to an indifferent acquaintance even without a pang. They can see him turn the leaves, and violate the stiffness of the back. I, monsieur, would almost as soon lend my arm and hand as one of those books. But, for you, I will make an exception. You shall have the volume which contains the report of the Prévol case, to read and take notes from at your leisure. You are more than good. Monsieur Dubard's library consisted of four rows of handsomely bound volumes, whose gilded backs shone behind a barricade of plate glass in a locked bookcase. They were books which he had collected at his leisure, and which bore for the most part on his profession. The memoirs of Vidocq, the memoirs of Canelet, of Sanson the Executioner, and other biographies of equally thrilling interest. For literature of so lofty a stamp, Felix Drubard had deemed no binding too luxurious, and he had clothed his favourites in all the pomp of purple and green and crimson and sumptuous gilding. He had caused them to be enriched with the bookbinder's whole gamut of ornament, his fleur-de-lis and roses, his foliage and acorns and scrolls and emblems. Even the volume of printed reports which Drubard handed to Mr. Heathcote was gorgeous in red morocco and gold. You will find the case fully reported in that volume, he said. When you have read it, and made your own conclusions upon it, you can come back to me, and we will talk the matter over together. I will call upon you again to-morrow at the same hour, if you will allow me, replied Heathcote, laying a ten-pound note upon the table. But I must ask you in the meantime to accept this trifle as an earnest of future remuneration. I do not on any account desire to impose on your good nature." Monsieur Drubard shrugged his shoulders, declared that as a matter of feeling he would rather work gratuitously for any friend of Mr. Distin's, but that from a business point of view his time was valuable. He had a little place in the country, fifteen miles out of Paris. He had nephews and nieces dependent upon him. In a word, he had to work for others as well as for himself. Before you go, perhaps you will be so good as to tell me your motive for hunting up the history of this old murder, he said with a keen look. He had been intending to ask this question from the beginning. I am searching out the details of an old murder in order to fathom the mystery of a new murder, or of a strange death, which I take to be a murder. Can you read English, Monsieur Drubard? I have a niece who can, a girl who was educated at a convent in Jersey. I am going to my country home this afternoon, and my niece can read anything you give me. Mr. Heathcote took from his pocket-book the report of the inquest cut out of the local papers, and pasted on slips of foolscap. "'If your niece will translate that report for you, I think you will understand the motive of my investigation,' he said, and then bade Monsieur Drubard good morning. He went downstairs with the volume of reports under his arm, hailed a fly, and drove to the Hôtel de Bade stopping on his way to engage a stall for that evening at the Comédie Française, the only recreation which he cared for in his present frame of mind. He had numerous acquaintances in Paris, but he did not care about seeing one of them just now, nor did he linger in the bright gay streets to mark the changes which a year had made in the aspect of that ever-varying city, as he would have done had his mind been free from care. He had a sitting-room and a bedroom on the second floor of the hotel, 
two nice little rooms opening into each other, and both overlooking the boulevard an outlook which on former occasions he had preferred to the monastic quiet of the courtyard, where there were no sounds but the splashing of the water with which the man-of-all-work sluiced the stone pavement at intervals of an hour or two on sultry summer afternoons, or the scream of a chambermaid arguing with a waiter, both talking as loud as if they had been communicating from the gate of Saint-Martin to the gate of Saint-Denis. Today, with the report of the Prévol case open before him, Edward Heathcote could have found it in his heart to curse the boulevard with its roar and rattle, its incessant yahoop of coachmen, on the point of running over passengers and everlasting clamour of the lively gall. He would have preferred a hermit's cave, with never a sound but the sighing of the wind on the mountain-side. Yes, here was the interrogation of the waiter at the pavilion Henri Quatre. Do you remember a lady and gentleman who dined in a private room on the 6th of September? The waiter remembered perfectly. The lady was very pretty, the gentleman remarkably handsome, with a distinguished air. They had a little girl with them. The gentleman ordered a private room and a little dinner, bien soigné. He was very particular about the champagne and about the dessert. The grapes and peaches were to be of the choicest. The gentleman and lady dined early, between five and six. The lady had a somewhat agitated air, seemed out of sorts, and ate very little. The gentleman was very attentive to her, and petted the little girl. At half-past six they went for a drive in the forest. The carriage was ordered directly they sat down to dinner. Had you any reason to suppose that this lady and gentleman had been followed or watched by anyone when they arrived at the Henri Quatre? They arrived in a fly. No, I observed no one lurking about or watching when they arrived. I went out to give an order to the coachman while the carriage was standing before the door, waiting to take them for their drive in the forest. And I observed a man on the other side of the road. I should not have noticed him, perhaps, if the collar of his overcoat had not been turned up in a curious manner. I thought it strange that anyone should wear an overcoat on such an evening. Did this man appear to be watching the hotel? He was standing in front of the hotel railings when I went out. I saw him look across at the window in which the lady and gentleman were dining. The window was at right angles with the road, opening into a garden. It was open, and there were two candelabra upon the table. Anyone could see into the room from the road. There was no blind or curtain. No, the evening was particularly mild. All the windows in the sitting-rooms were open. What became of this man? He walked rapidly along the road and turned the corner onto the terrace. Should you recognize him if you were to see him again? Impossible. It was twilight when I saw him, and he was on the other side of the road. His coat collar was turned up so as to hide the lower half of his face. But you must at least have observed his general appearance. Was he tall or short? Had he an air of the gentleman? He was tall. Yes, I should say he was a gentleman young or old he walked like a young man i thought he had an agitated air he walked very quickly but stopped suddenly two or three times between the hotel and the corner of the terrace as if he were thinking deeply hesitating whether to go this way or that and then he walked on again faster than before you saw no more of him that evening no at half-past eight o'clock i heard that there had been a double murder in the forest and that the bodies were lying at the town hall I went to see the bodies and recognized the lady and gentleman who had dined at our hotel. 
I also saw the little girl who was in the charge of the police. She was crying bitterly. The corpses were removed to Paris on the following evening. The examination of the driver came next. He had very little to tell. He had been told to wait at the crossroads until the lady and gentleman returned from their stroll. It was a lovely night, a night which might have tempted anyone to alight and walk in the forest glade. The moon was rising, but it was dark amidst the old trees. The man had been waiting about a quarter of an hour when he heard a shot a little way off, and then another, and another, and another in rapid succession. And then he heard a child screaming. He tied his horse to a tree, and he ran into the glade, guided by the screams of the child. He found the lady and gentleman lying on the ground side by side, the child kneeling by the lady and screaming with grief and terror. The gentleman groaned two or three times, and then expired. The lady neither stirred nor moaned. The light-coloured gown and mantle were covered with blood. The driver was questioned as to whether anybody had passed him while he waited at the crossroads. No, he had not observed anyone except an old woman and a boy who had been gathering sticks in the forest. The place at which he was waiting was a well-known point. The glade in which the murder occurred was considered one of the most picturesque spots in the forest. He always drove there with people who wanted to see the beauties of Saint-Germain, but at that late hour there were very few people driving. He had met no carriage after leaving the terrace. Then followed the examination of the child and of Marie Prévold's mother. They were both lengthy, for the juge d'instruction had applied himself with peculiar earnestness to the task of unravelling this mystery, and it was only in the details of the dead woman's surroundings that the clue to the secret could be found. The child had evidently answered the magisterial questions with extreme intelligence. However she might have broken down afterwards, she had been perfectly rational at the time of the interrogatory. It seemed to Heathcote, influenced perhaps by his knowledge of after-events, that the child's replies indicated a hypersensitiveness and an intellect intensified by feverish excitement. You remember going to Saint-Germain with your aunt? Yes. Tell me all you can recall about that day. Tell me exactly when and how you started and what happened to you on the way. I want to hear everything. It was three o'clock when we left my aunt's house. Monsieur de Maucroix came a little before that and asked my aunt to go to dinner with him somewhere in the country. The weather was too lovely for Paris, he said. She did not want to go. She said Georges would be angry. Who is Georges? Someone I never saw. Was he a friend of your aunt's? Yes, I think so. She often talked of him. Monsieur de Maucroix used to talk of him and to be angry about him. Why angry? I don't know. He used to say, Georges will not let you do this. Georges will not let you do that. What right has Georges that he should order you here or there? And then my aunt used to cry. Were you often at your aunt's apartment? Very often. You lived there sometimes, did you not? Yes, I used to stay there for a week sometimes. It was very nice to be with my aunt, much nicer than being with grandmother. She used to take me out in a carriage sometimes. Her rooms were prettier than grandmother's rooms for there were flowers all about and pretty things and she was prettier and more prettier clothes but if you were there for a week at a time how was it that you never saw this monsieur georges who was such a close friend of your aunt's he never came till late at night he used to come to supper often i heard the servant say so she said he was a dissipated man a bad subject 
grandmother said so too has that night-bird been here again she asked my aunt once and my aunt was angry and began to cry and then grandmother got angry too and said who is he and what is he i want to know that and then my aunt said he's a gentleman that is enough for you to know and then she showed my grandmother a pretty necklace that georges had given her the night before a necklace of shining white beads like the water drops from the fountain at the tuileries they were diamonds i suppose yes that is what grandmother called them she wetted them with her tongue to find out if they were real diamonds and then she and my aunt kissed each other and made friends you are sure you never saw this monsieur georges never my aunt used to send me to bed very early before she went to the theatre did she not take you with her to the theatre sometimes never she said that theatres were not good for little girls now tell me about your journey to saint germain how did you go first in a carriage and then on a train had you to wait at the station a long time i was tired of waiting so long i thought it would have been nicer to be at home where i had story-books to read what did your aunt and monsieur de maucroix do while they were waiting they sat in a corner of a big room with great windows through which we could see the trains i watched the trains through the window were there many other people in the room very few did you take notice of any one i noticed a little girl she was bigger than i am but not much i thought i should like to play with her she had a blue balloon and she let it fly out of the window and broke it did you notice nobody else only one other person a gentleman who wore dark spectacles what made you observe him in particular his spectacles were so curious and he looked at my aunt what do you mean when you say that he looked at your aunt did he look as if he knew her i don't know he stood just inside the doorway as if he was hiding behind the door looking at my aunt and monsieur de maucroix how long did he stand there i don't know for five minutes do you think as long as you could count a hundred longer than that was he young or old tall or short he was tall i think he must have been old because he wore dark spectacles did your aunt or monsieur de maucroix observe him no i asked my aunt when we were in the train if she had seen the gentleman with the funny spectacles and she said no did you see him again after he left the waiting-room no now tell me all you can about your journey to saint germain we went in the train in a beautiful carriage with soft cushions i looked out of the window all the time my aunt and monsieur de maucroix sat by the other window talking did you hear what they said not much i was not listening it was so nice to see the country and the trees rushing by i heard monsieur de maucroix ask my aunt to go away with him he begged her to go to italy i think he said is there a place called italy yes and how did your aunt answer she said she would not go she was bound to georges georges would kill her if she left him monsieur de maucroix laughed and said that people do not do such things nowadays he laughed and soon afterwards my aunt and he were both dead i saw the blood streams of blood at this point said the report the girl lamarque became hysterical and the rest of her evidence had to be postponed for another day in the meantime the grandmother and barbe giraud marie prevol's servant were interrogated 
Madame Lamarque stated that her daughter was an actress at the Porte Saint-Martin. She was very beautiful and was more renowned for her grace and beauty than for her acting. She danced and sang and acted in fairy scenes. She was only three and twenty years of age at the time of her death. Upon being asked by the judge whether her daughter led a strictly moral life, Madame Lamarque replied that her conduct was purity itself as compared with that of many ladies who acted in fairy pieces. But there was someone, perhaps, insinuated the judge. There is always someone. So beautiful a woman must have had many admirers. I have her photograph here. It is an exquisite face, a beauty quite out of the common, refined, spiritual. Surely among her many admirers there must have been one whom she favoured above all the rest. Yes, there was one, and it was that one who murdered my daughter and Monsieur de Maucroix. No one can doubt it. But you have no actual knowledge of the facts. You speak upon conjecture. Who else should murder her? Whom did she ever injure, poor child? She was amiability itself, the kindest of comrades, charitable, good to everybody. What do you know of this person whom you suspect? Nothing except that which I heard from my daughter. Do you never see him? never if he had been the emperor he could not have been more mysterious in his goings to and fro i was never allowed to see him was he often at your daughter's apartment very often he used to go there after the theatre he was devoted to her there were some who believed that he was her husband that he loved her too passionately to deny her anything she might ask when she was not acting he took her abroad to italy to spain if it were only for a holiday for a fortnight he would carry her off to some remote village in the italian alps or the pyrenees i used to tell her that he was ashamed of his love for her or he would not have hidden her in those distant places he would have taken her to dieppe or alcachon where she would have been seen and admired did you ever find out who this person is never but you must know something about him and his circumstances was he a nobleman or did he belong to the mercantile class i know nothing except that he was rich he showered gifts upon my daughter he would have taken her off the stage if she would have allowed him he would have given her a house and gardens at bougival instead of her little apartment on the third floor in rue lafitte but she loved the theatre and she had a proud spirit poor child she had not the temper of la femme entretenue what was the name of this person Monsieur Georges, I never heard of him by any other name. Did your daughter reciprocate his passion? For a long time she seemed to do so. They were like lovers in a story. That lasted for years, from the time of her first appearance at the Porte Saint-Martin, which was four years before her death. And then there came a change. Monsieur de Maucroix fell in love with her, followed her about everywhere, worshipped her. And he was young and handsome and fascinating, with the styles and manners of a prince he had spent all his life in palaces had been attached to the emperor's household from his boyhood had fought bravely through the war had you any reason to know that monsieur georges was jealous of monsieur de maucroix yes my daughter told me that there had been scenes had the two men met i think not how long had monsieur de maucroix been an avowed admirer of your daughter only a few months since easter i think my granddaughter used to see him when she was staying with her aunt could you reconcile it to your conscience to allow your grandchild to live in the house of an aunt who was leading well we will say a doubtful life 
There was no harm in my daughter's life that I knew of. Monsieur Georges may have been my daughter's husband. There is no reason that he should not have been. At her lodging she was known as Madame Georges. It was under that name she travelled when she went abroad. But you had never heard of any marriage, at the mairie or elsewhere. And again, your daughter could not be married without your consent. I do not say that she had been married in France. She may have been married abroad, in England, perhaps. He took her to England soon after they became acquainted. It was the first time she left Paris with him, and until then I know she had been as distant to him as if she had been the Empress. In England there are no obstacles to marriage. There is no one's consent to be asked. We will admit that a marriage in a foreign country would have been possible, but this Maxime de Maucroix, this second admirer, was only an admirer. My daughter's life was not a disreputable life. I have nothing to reproach myself with upon that score. Can you help us to find this man Georges, whom you suspect as the murderer? Do you know where he is to be found? If I did, the police would have known before now. I tell you I know nothing about him, absolutely nothing. I have seen and heard nothing of him since the murder. He has not been to my daughter's apartment since her death. He was not at her funeral. He who pretended to adore her did not follow her to her grave. All Paris was there, but he who was supposed to be her husband was not there. How can you tell that he was not there, since you do not know his appearance? Barbe Giraud knows him. It is on her authority that I say he was not there. I will trouble you with no further questions today, madame. I will take Barbe Giraud's evidence next. Barbe Giraud's evidence was to the effect that for nearly four years this Monsieur Georges had been a constant visitor at her mistress's apartment. He had come there after the theatre, and it had been Barbe's duty to leave the supper-table laid, and the candles ready on the chimney-piece and table, before she went to bed. Madame Georges let herself in with a latch-key, and Barbe rarely sat up for her. Madame did not always return to the Rue Lafitte for supper. There were occasions when she supped on the boulevard or in the bois and returned to her apartment at a very late hour. Barbe saw Monsieur Georges occasionally, but not frequently. He was a handsome man, but not in his first youth. He might have been five or six and thirty. He was generous and appeared to be rich. Whatever his fortune may have been, he would have given Madame the whole of it if she had asked him. There was never a man more passionately in love with a woman. After the Baron de Maucroix's appearance on the scene, there were storms. Barbe had seen Monsieur Georges cry like a child. She had also seen him give way to violent passion. There had been one night when she thought that he would kill Madame. He had his hands upon her throat. He seemed as if he were going to strangle her. But then he fell on his knees and grovelled at her feet. He implored her to forgive him. It was dreadful. Did Barbe Giraud think that Monsieur Georges was Madame's husband? She had never presumed to form an opinion upon that subject. Her mistress wore a wedding ring and was always known as Madame Georges in the house where she lived. Madame's conduct was altogether irreproachable. Until the Baron de Maucroix began to visit her, no other man than Monsieur Georges had crossed her threshold. And the visits of Monsieur de Maucroix were such visits as any gentleman in Paris might pay to any lady were she the highest in the land did your mistress ever go out with monsieur de maucroix before that fatal visit to saint germain never on that occasion madame took the little girl with her 
she refused to go alone with the Baron. Is it your opinion that your mistress was inclined to favour Monsieur de Montcoin's suit? Alas, yes, he was so young, so fascinating, so handsome, and he adored her. If she had not been in love with him, she would hardly have permitted his visits, for they were the cause of such agony of mind to Monsieur Georges. Is it your belief, then, that she had transferred her affection from the older to the younger lover? I fear so. You have not seen Monsieur Georges since the murder? No. Are you sure that he was not at the funeral? Quite sure. But there was a great crowd at the cemetery. How can you be sure that he was not in the crowd? I cannot be sure of that, but I am sure that he paid my mistress no honour. He was not among those who stood around her grave or who threw flowers upon her coffin. I stayed by the grave after all was over and the crowd had dispersed, but Monsieur Georges never came near to cast a look upon the spot where my poor mistress was lying. He has not been at her apartment since her death. He never came to look upon her corpse when it was lying there. And he has not written? He has not given orders as to the disposal of your mistress's property? No. Madame Lamarque has taken possession of everything. She is living in my mistress's apartment until the furniture can be sold. Do you know of any photograph or portrait of Monsieur Georges among your late mistress's possessions? I never saw any such portrait. You would know Monsieur Georges wherever you might happen to see him? Yes, I do not think I could fail to recognize him, even if he had disguised himself. Even then, I think I should know his voice anywhere, even if I could not see his face. Will you describe him? He is a tall man, broad-shouldered, powerful-looking. He has fine features, blue eyes, light auburn hair, thick and flowing, and wore much longer than most people wear their hair. He is not so handsome or so elegant as Monsieur de Montcroix but he has a more commanding look. That description would apply to hundreds of men. Can you mention any peculiarity of feature, expression, gait, manner? No, I can recall nothing peculiar. And in moments of confidence, did your mistress never tell you anything about this Monsieur Georges, his profession, his belongings, his place of residence? Nothing. He did not live at your mistress's apartments, I conclude. No, he did not live there. Did you never hear how he was occupied during the day, since he was never at your mistress's apartment in the daytime? Never. I was told nothing about him except that he was rich and a gentleman. I asked no questions. My place was comfortable, my wages were paid regularly, and Madame was kind to me. Where did Léonie Lamarque sleep when she stayed at the Rue Lafitte? She occupied a little bed in my room, which is inside the kitchen. Were you long in Madame's service? Nearly four years, from the beginning of her engagement at the Porte Saint-Martin, when she took the apartment in the Rue Lafitte. Her salary at the theatre justified her in taking such an apartment. Before that time she had been living with her mother on the other side of the Seine. Is it your opinion that Monsieur Georges was the murderer? That is my fixed opinion. This concluded the examination of Barbe Giraud. The little girl's examination was not resumed until ten days later. She had been very ill in the meantime, and seemed altogether weak and broken down when she was brought before the juge d'instruction. She burst out crying in the midst of her evidence, and the grandmother had great difficulty in calming her. 
We had a nice dinner, and Monsieur de Maucroix was very kind and gave me grapes and a big peach, and he promised to buy me a doll next day in the Passage Geoffroy. My aunt was sad, and Monsieur de Maucroix begged her to be gay, and he talked about taking her to Italy with him, just as he had talked in the train, and then we went out in a carriage and drove along a terrace where there was a beautiful view over a river and a great green valley. My aunt seemed much gayer, and she and Monsieur de Maucroix were talking and laughing all the time, and afterwards, when we all got out of the carriage and walked in the forest, they both seemed very happy, and my aunt rested her head on Monsieur de Maucroix's shoulder as they walked along, and said it was like being in heaven to be in that moonlit forest with him, and then, just at that moment, a man rushed out from the darkness under the trees like a wild beast out of a cave, and shot, and shot, and shot again and again and again and first monsieur de maucroix fell and then my aunt and she was all over blood i could see it streaming over her light blue gown first one stream and then another i can see it now i am seeing it always it wakes me out of my sleep oh take it away take away the dark forest take away the blood at this point said the report the child again became hysterical and had to be carried away after this she had an attack of brain fever and could not again be interrogated formally end of chapter 11 end of volume 1